0: It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, she said, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, The Trump Cast, The Daily Show, In Deep with Angie Koiro, and the Tom Hartman Program. Now, I'm starting today by taking a big step back to give some context. This first clip is from NPR, way back on March 10th of 2006. It's about former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and I want to say right now, right up front, before we get started, that I put myself squarely in the O'Connor school of thought on dictatorships, an abundance of caution with an eye on the future. And I know many may take offense to the comparisons made in today's episode, but I really want to stress that I have gone out of my way to find people speaking with a great deal of nuance on this topic, and the comparisons are not made lightly or to fearmonger, but to draw real lessons from the past. use in our current situation. So while you listen to this first report from 2006, think about the modern-day Republicans' nakedly partisan effort to prevent a new Supreme Court Justice from being appointed during Barack Obama's term while their party simultaneously nominated a candidate with the most autocratic tendencies we've ever seen in this country. Supreme Court Justices keep many opinions private, but a former Justice is speaking out. Yesterday, Sandra Day O'Connor criticized Republicans who criticized the courts. She said the critics challenged the independence of judges and the freedoms of all Americans. Her speech at Georgetown University was not available for broadcast, but NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg was there.
0: In an unusually forceful and forthright speech, O'Connor said that attacks on the judiciary by some Republican leaders pose a direct threat to our constitutional freedoms. O'Connor began by conceding that courts do have the power to make presidents or the Congress or governors, as she put it, really, really angry. But, she continued, if we don't make them mad some of the time, we probably aren't doing our jobs as judges. And our effectiveness, she said, is premised on the notion that we won't be subject to retaliation for our judicial acts. The nation's founders wrote repeatedly, she said, that without an independent judiciary to protect individual rights from the other branches of government, those rights and privileges would amount to nothing. But, said O'Connor, as the Founding Fathers knew, statutes and constitutions don't protect judicial independence, people do. And then she took aim at former House GOP leader Tom DeLay. She didn't name him, but she quoted his attacks on the courts at a meeting of the conservative Christian group Justice Sunday last year when DeLay took out after the courts for rulings on abortion, prayer, and the Terry Schiavo case. This, said O'Connor, was after the federal courts had applied Congress's one-time-only statute about shivo as it was written. Not, said O'Connor, as the congressman might have wished it were written. The response to this flagrant display of judicial restraint, said O'Connor, her voice dripping with sarcasm, was that the congressman blasted the courts. It gets worse, she said, noting that death threats against judges are increasing. It doesn't help, she said, when a high-profile senator suggests there may be a connection between violence against judges and decisions that the senator disagrees with. She didn't name him, but it was Texas Senator John Cornyn who made that statement after a Georgia judge was murdered in the courtroom and the family of a federal judge in Illinois murdered in the judge's home. O'Connor observed that there have been a lot of suggestions lately for so-called judicial reforms—recommendations for the massive impeachment of judges, stripping the courts of jurisdiction, and cutting judicial budgets to punish offending judges. Any of these might be debatable, she said, as long as they are not retaliation for decisions that political leaders disagree with. I, said O'Connor, am against judicial reforms driven by nakedly partisan reasoning Pointing to the experiences of developing countries and former communist countries where interference with an independent judiciary has allowed dictatorship to flourish, O'Connor said we must be ever vigilant against those who would strong-arm the judiciary into adopting their preferred policies. It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, she said, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington.
2: My guest today is Timothy Snyder. He's a professor of history at Yale, specializing in Eastern and Central European history, and the author of several books, including Bloodlands and Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. Tim, welcome to the show. Glad to talk to you. So your piece in Slate begins. His election that November came as a surprise. And what you do in that piece is you narrate aspects of Hitler's rise to power in Germany without using any proper nouns. And it turns out that a lot of that description comes pretty close to applying to the phenomenon of Donald Trump.
3: There's, you know, once I submitted that piece to you, I realized there was more. I mean, two sentences in the, fir- in the first paragraph could have read, his popularity seemed to have peaked. Another one could have read, it appeared that the nation was on its way out of economic crisis. There are an awful lot of echoes. But what I was after there was, was trying to find a middle way between historical analogy and dismissing history altogether. Because, of course, on the one hand, it's right that history doesn't repeat itself. Um, but on the other hand, we're often too quick to use that cliche or to say, you know, that's just an analogy and then find a flaw with it. We're often too quick to do those things in order not to think about history at all. History shows a range of possibility. If a thing can happen, that means it must have been able to happen. History broadens our imagination, I think, about what's possible. It also helps us to see patterns and processes. We're having a, we're having a hard time with processes these days. We, we, move, we move from flash to flash event to event. We're, we're shocked all the time, but we have a little trouble putting all the pieces together. So what I was after in that essay was was trying to recall that this event that we think we understand, Hitler, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, and so on, was also a process with some accidents, with some contingencies, with some places where things have might have gone in a different direction, but above all, a, a, a process where people could have and failed to say no at certain points.
2: You know, a lot of people do have the reaction. I mean, you do something that is quite incendiary. Here, you do it in a very measured way. But a lot of people say you just shouldn't make comparisons to Hitler for a lot of reasons, either because it has the effect of of diminishing the the uniqueness of Hitler's crimes or because, you know, when the sort of people refer to Godwin's law, it just sort of ends the conversation. Once there's a comparison to Hitler, it's sort of hard to say much of anything else except people end up yelling at each other.
3: It's not, the thing is, you know, I mean, it's not a comparison, I guess, is the point. So a comparison is when we say Hitler was X and Trump is Y and, you know, Y is a little bit like X. A comparison takes two static things and says they're like each other or they're not like each other. It looks at the differences or the similarities. A comparison is usually anti-historical, right? So, I mean, as a historian, I usually get annoyed by comparisons, too. But what, what I'm after here is, is to try to get us out of that impulse of, of, of either quickly accepting or quickly rejecting a comparison or comparisons as such and helping us to think our way into alternative perspectives, which I think is helpful because we don't really know what our perspective is right now. We don't know um who the person we've elected is. We don't know what, what is being planned, right? We we have we have we, we have guesses about how our institutions will will react, but we don't really have any idea because our institutions have never been tested the way they're going to be tested now. So I, 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 I think it's, it's a mistake to, to toss out the baby with the bathwater and, you know, in the interest of, of purity of concepts, um, stop thinking about, about history in entirely. I guess the second thing I would say about comparing and, and Hitler, even though this is not what I'm after, I mean, in this, in this piece, I try very hard, you know, to do something different. It's really important to remember that Hitler happened in history. And that when Hitler was happening in history, people were trying to figure him out at the time, and they were making all kinds of comparisons as a way to do so. Right? Was Hitler like Mussolini? Was Hitler like Stalin? You know, was was Hitler another big spender? Was Hitler another nationalist? Was, or this was Hitler that? Everyone who was trying to understand Hitler was making you know was making comparisons themselves, and people have been doing it ever 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 since. There's nothing holy about or unholy about doing it. What I would say is that you know, we have an advantage over those people in the 1930s, and our advantage is that we have the processes of the 20th century behind us. We can look at them. We don't have to be surprised by the fact that modern institutions or educated people can throw up authoritarianism or tyrants. There's no reason for us to be surprised by that because it's happened over and over again. So I think it'd be a mistake to just toss away that advantage.
2: Um you know reading this I realized how little I actually know about about the rise of Hitler and and those years I just wanted to ask you a little more about that. I mean you write one of the lines in your piece you say various right-wing elites preserved their calm although they had failed to keep him from power they were sure that they could control him. Does that describe the attitude of President Hindenburg and and other people on the non-Nazi German right when when Hitler was uh, in in 1932 before and after the election?
3: I'm I'm really glad you you asked that question because it, in a way it casts light on 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 the previous one. So let me just say a word about that before before I answer it. We often forget. The steps that had to be taken for Hitler come to, to Hitler further Hitler come to power. What we often do is we freeze frame the Second World War, or we freeze frame Auschwitz or, or Treblinka or the Holocaust as a whole, and we say, "Well, that hasn't happened; therefore, not to worry." Which which tends to make me and I think some some other historians at least a little bit crazy, because in order to get to you know, in order to get to the Second World War, in order to get to to, to the Holocaust, a whole series of things had to happen. And it's those things that ought to be, we ought to be thinking about, not because they're exactly the same, but because they might offer us some purchase on our own reactions, on how we might be behaving. So yes, it's exactly right that Hitler was a kind of, people thought of him at the time as a kind of rabble-rousing politician. People thought of him as having certain gifts, but as having limited gifts. The people who were older than he was or the people who were more experienced in politics, the people who had traditional political parties, believed that they could, could understand him within their own terms. And they were wrong, the people who formed up who were responsible for forming up the government that he would be the head of believed that they would be able to manipulate him, get him in and out of power as they wished, you know ride on the appeal of his movement as long as they wanted to, and then stop and, and they proved to be mistaken so yeah, I mean Hitler had just lost to Hindenburg in presidential elections. von Poppen you know would be, would be the crucial character, people from the German far right who were instrumental in seeing Hitler come to power, but then found themselves faced with something they didn't understand. And then to jump ahead, because I don't know what your next question is going to be, the, the crucial thing is that not long after Hitler came to power, there was a crisis, which was the Reichstag fire, um, the act of terrorism in, in the peace. And so then you get two surprises in a row. One surprise being a kind of unknown person who's given the reins to power, and then the other surprise being, a, being what seems like an external shock, which seems to break all the rules and justify novelty. That, you know, we, we know not just from the example of Hitler, but from all kinds of other examples, that's a very powerful combination. And I'm, I'm, in, in, you, in talking about during the 1930s, I'm just trying, I'm trying to stress that that tends to act on people in similar ways over time.
2: Yeah, um, it's, you mentioned the Reichstag fire, you refer to that as sort of the terrorist attack in the piece. There's still historical debate, right, about whether that was deliberate, um, sabotage by, whether Hitler set it up or whether it was an ac- actual sabotage. I guess people now think Hitler didn't set it up, but he used it. Is that what, is that what the historical consensus is now?
3: So let me answer that in three ways. I'm going to tell you what the historical consensus is, and and then I'm going to say why it doesn't really matter so much who's right, and then I'm going to say a word about the present. The historical consensus is indeed that the Reichstag fire was started by a lone Dutch anarchist, as Hitler and the Germans at the time said that it was. I mean, as everyone probably will know, what happens in the Reichstag fire is that this then becomes the occasion for Hitler to declare a state of emergency, which is then enforced for the entire remainder of his life and, and of his power. It's enforced until until 1945. That um, means the de facto end of parliament, the de facto end of, of political party life as the leaders of other parties are put in camps and so on. So it's a really decisive moment. But historians think, as you say, that it probably was just an accident. I mean, I'd just say a contingency that he reacted to it. However, there, there are there are there is some revisionist work which suggests quite the opposite that it had been planned um, and that and that the Nazis reacted so swiftly because they knew it was coming. But my second point is that it doesn't really matter so much. I mean, we it, it would change if, if we were if we're all convinced that, that that Hitler had in fact planned the Reichstag fire. That wouldn't add so much to his catalog of evil, really. You know, given what we know, what, what's crucial is the way that leaders and people react to something like that. And Hitler was able to use um, the event, however it arrived, as a justification for a fundamental and really rapid transformation of of the system. And it's it's that point that one has to watch out for, which brings me up to the present. I mean, given the circumstances in which, just given the raw circumstances in which we live, it's quite possible that there will be some kind of major terrorist attack, God forbid, on American soil in, in the next four years. And just how that happens, you know, we're probably not going to know at the time. Will it be that that ISIS sees precisely American polarization at the moment as a good reason to try to attack? Will it be that ISIS or someone else finds General Flynn provocative and therefore tries to go after the United States? Will it be that, you know, in a slightly nastier and more dubious combination, other people um, who are not Islamic terrorists at all set up something to look like it's Islamic terrorists? Whatever it is, we're not going to know on the day that it happens. And, and whatever it is, you know, the threat The threat to the system is going to be the same. The possibility that that the government decides that this means we have to have some kind of permanent emergency.
1: If you're looking to hire a new employee, it may be hard to know where to start. First of all, do you know where to post the job listing to find the best candidate? There are over 100 job sites out there. And if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all of the top sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job opening to over 100 sites plus social media networks like Facebook and Twitter with a single click. And with ZipRecruiter, you don't have to juggle emails or calls coming into your office. Just quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast from right within ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. They've got great recruiting tips as well to help you write your job posting, and ZipRecruiter even wrote up a report about how to avoid gendered terms while writing your listing to assure you have a diverse group of applicants. Their service team is ready to help in all kinds of ways, including being armed with this data to help employers avoid gendered terms in their job postings. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ziprecruiter.com slash free trial. One last time, to try it for free, go to ziprecruiter.com slash free trial
4: the burning houses down and racist lies and will never rest again until every Nazi dies.
5: Let's get back to real life, or whatever we're calling this thing now. Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. And it's a confusing time, but luckily we've got news experts. Trump won, so what now? We have no idea
6: what Trump is going to do. We may not know who we're getting. There is a great unknown about what Donald Trump is going to do.
5: Nobody on the planet knows what Donald Trump's going to do. That's true. Nobody on the planet knows what Donald Trump's going to do, including Donald Trump. He's making it up as he goes along. His presidency is basically gonna be a high-stakes improv scene. All right, folks, I need a character and a location and something much better than Obamacare. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm not surprised that people are terrified at the prospect of a Trump presidency. I mean, you've probably heard of many Americans saying they wanna move to Canada. You know, which is slightly presumptuous, in my opinion. You know, like Canada is just going to wave you in. <laughs> you realize that Canada has very strict immigration policy. To be eligible, you have to name at least six cities in Canada, which is actually pretty easy. I mean, it's there's Vancouver, there's Montreal, uh, Quebec, uh, Toronto, um, Nickelback, Celine Dion. Cool. So anyway, since Trump's victory. You realize I've been asked that question by many people. A man in the audience asked me that today. Whether or not I'm going to run away back to South Africa, uh, which I find slightly ironic. Before Trump, there were people who hated me who were saying, go back to Africa! Now it's people who like me saying, you should go back to Africa, man. (laughs) You should really go back to Africa. (laughs) But but here's the thing, here's the thing. Running to Africa won't necessarily shield me from Trumpness. Because remember, when I first started hosting The Daily Show, I said... Donald Trump reminds me of an African dictator and we had the evidence to back it up. I am the one who has got the money. I made a tremendous amount of
2: money.
7: My people have great praise for me.
5: People love me, everybody
7: loves me. I have got a very good brain. God help me by giving me a certain brain. We will win,
5: we will be winning all the time. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. Yeah, remember that? Remember that, right? And, and that's what I said, it reminds me of an African. Although I, I will admit, now I feel like I owe African dictators an apology. Uh, you know, they were probably watching this election like, no, 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 no. no. I might kill people, but to grab someone by their pussy. No, 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 no. I have the column, I have the column, huh? What kind of a man grabs it? You touch it, maybe you rub it, huh? Why are you grabbing it? Maybe your hands are small. That's why you have to grab eh? No, 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 no. Now, the thought thought of Donald Trump as a dictator was funnier when him in power was hypothetical. But then America decided to shake things up. And now it seems like the best place for you to find the answers about a possible future lie in the third world which I know can be hard for a lot of people because you usually look to the third world only when you want to guilt trip your kids when they hate their Christmas presents, you know? Well, I'm sure some kids in Africa would love to get this educational computer game, Timmy. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I, I know that hearing about foreign politics can sometimes be drier than Marco Rubio's tongue, but, <laughs> but bear with me here, bear with me here. Looking at leaders like him may be the only way to figure out Donald Trump. And I'm thinking specifically, of my home country, South Africa. Also known as the one African country you can easily find on the map, right? Yeah, it's just like, Africa, uh, there. Cool. (laughs) Up until a few years ago, our economy was humming. Tourism was thriving, and we too were celebrating our first black president. You remember that feeling? Yeah, yeah, you know that feeling? Basically, times were good.
2: After 27 years, Nelson Mandela walked out of Victor Forster Prison today. The 2010 FIFA World Cup will be organized in South Africa.
3: South Africa's Oscar Pistorius won the day. Oscar Pistorius is
4: the Paralympic champion.
5: Oh man, so many good memories. I was in the crowd when the Simba thing was happening. That was, (laughs) yeah, we had to stop doing that because the next year he dropped the cup. It was, anyway. (laughs) The point is, things were looking up for us as a nation. But unfortunately, in the last few years, things have taken a turn for the worse. The economy has stalled. Unemployment is at record highs. Government corruption is rampant. And it wasn't just Oscar Pistorius who disappointed us. Just last year, Simba was arrested for securities fraud. (laughs) Yes. So why did this all happen? Well, I'll tell you why. Because South African voters decided to shake things up. And so we elected a man by the name of Jacob Zuma, a charismatic anti-establishment president. And I I know you can't relate, but bear with me, bear with me. You see, the inept self-serving way that Zuma has run his administration has turned South Africa from a rising power to a very troubled state. And the reason I'm telling you this is that because when you look at Zuma and Trump, it seems like they're brothers from another mother.
2: In South Africa, that country's high court says the nation's president, Jacob Zuma, should face more than 700 corruption and fraud charges.
8: Donald Trump has over 400 lawsuits
9: against him right now. Zuma is building his reputation as the man of the people. Donald Trump is a man of the people.
3: Jacob Zuma's most avid supporters can be found in
10: rural areas and townships. His supporters are... uh, overwhelmingly rural area
7: voters. He was also charged and then acquitted of rape.
8: He has a rape status conference with a judge coming up.
5: Jacob Zuma was called the Teflon politician.
8: I've said it time and time again, he is the Teflon Don. Yep.
5: Just like my president, Donald Trump appears to be Teflon. Literally Teflon though, I think that's what he's spraying on his face. (laughs) That's why it looks so strange. And, and now look, all of these similarities are amusing on the surface. What's more important is understanding what a leader like this could mean for America. For instance, let's let's just look at what Donald Trump said just this week.
10: The president-elect says he plans to place his company in a blind trust to be run by his children, but, but legal experts say the definition of a blind trust is that it's run by people not in contact with the owner.
5: Yeah, it's a bit weird that we have to say this, but uh, Donald... The point of a blind trust is that you can't see where your money is. It reassures the country that their president isn't making decisions for his own financial gain. If your kids, who you talk to every day, are running the trust, then it's not blind. You see, it's the difference between Ray Charles and Jamie Foxx playing Ray Charles, (laughs) right? One of them is blind. And one of them is faking it and getting rich in the process. (laughs) We saw the same thing in South Africa. Jacob Zuma started off like this. He's like, oh, my kids are gonna run businesses. And they do, they also run businesses. And then those businesses have won billions in inflated government contracts, which has cost the taxpayer millions and billions of dollars and they screwed the economy. So so, so what's another one of uh, Donald Trump's signature moves? If I win, I am going to instruct my attorney
7: general to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation.
9: It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country.
7: Because you'd be in jail.
5: Oh. (laughs) I wonder if... (laughs) We're probably gonna have to cut this, but I'm like, can his dealer get to the White House? Whatever. So, uh... So Trump, using prosecution to intimidate his opponents, it might seem like a a novel thing in the U.S., uh, but just like soccer, you might want to get used to it. You see, it's called state capture, hijacking state resources for your personal benefits. And by the way, the term state capture, we didn't know that term in South Africa until this year. Now we just use it in common, like everyone's just like, ah, state capture, yeah, state capture, state capture. It's become a normal thing, because in South Africa, it's a tactic that Zuma has exploited again and again. For instance, this year, when the finance minister of South Africa called out our president for illegal business dealings, Zuma ordered our FBI to prosecute the finance minister on dubious charges. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, we don't call them the FBI. Our agency is called the Hawks, right? And before that, we called them the Scorpions. Uh, and yes, I know our law enforcement agencies sound like gangs in a bootleg West Side story, but <laughs> we like it. It makes us feel at home. Uh, you know, it's, 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 not only, it's not only great for intimidating your rivals as well. It's also good because it distracts the people from the problems you're having. And now I'm not saying that Donald Trump will do that, but if he does, you guys owe me 20, right? For everything that you look at, Zuma and Trump even feel the same way about the media. Even the media, they think they know me better. No, the people of this country know me better than they do.
7: And the media are among the most dishonest people anywhere at any time. But they can't stop us.
5: They've tried to tell people how useless this man is. They write lies. They write false stories. They know they're false. It makes no difference. That's, 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 a, that's a problem of the media and whoever else is behind the media. The election is being rigged by corrupt media pushing completely false allegations and outright lies. It's exactly the same. It's almost like when they leave the house, Melania's like, OK, Donald. I do Michelle's ones, you take the African guy's lines, okay? <laughs> you see, when, when you're the head of government and you're trying to get away with a free press is not your friend. It's the reason that President Zuma has been trying for years to get the legal power to censor South African press. Or as Donald Trump would so eloquently say.
7: We're gonna open up those libel laws so that when the New York Times writes a hit piece, which is a total disgrace, We can sue them and win money,
5: so we're gonna open up those libel laws, folks, and we're gonna have people sue you like you never
2: got sued before.
5: Yeah! I love the crowd cheering like they're getting the money. We're all getting the money! Yeah! Now, now again, I'm not saying that Trump's definitely gonna do that, but if it's true, I'm not gonna be able to say that later on, so I may as well say it now. Now, luckily, Zuma hasn't been able to muzzle the press in South Africa, right? Because he doesn't have control of South Africa's court system. That is a big hindrance to him, but a, a hindrance that El Trumpo may not have to face.
7: He's gonna be filling the lower courts. Mm -hmm. There are dozens of district court vacancies, federal court of appeals vacancies, and these are the courts that actually decide the vast majority of litigation in the United States. At least one
5: Supreme Court justice, maybe as many as four. Trump will potentially shape the court for a generation. Now look, there are many differences and many similarities, and I'm not saying it's going to be the same here as it is in a third world country. Of course not. I'm saying, it could be much worse.
1: If you're listening to this ad, then you are probably also trying to decide what podcast to listen to next, and I've got one for you. You and I both know that it is critical to stay engaged in politics at a time like this, but we also have to make time To recharge our battery. So, if you need to take a breather from the news, I totally understand. Try subscribing to Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. It's an audio drama told week after week. The latest series they've come out with is a darkly comedic reimagining of the serial podcast as a musical satire in which Sarah Koenig is one of the suspects. It's called Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. Their production quality is top notch, and the talent on the show includes Broadway star Leslie Kritzer. Subscribe and don't miss a single episode of Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape on iTunes, Stitcher, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to make it easy, there's a URL in the show notes of this episode that's Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape for your escapist listening pleasure.
2: You write another line from your piece, global conspiracies were supposedly directed at his country and its uniquely righteous people. You know, one of the things that just seemed absolutely chilling to me was in the closing days of the campaign when Trump started to give these speeches that actually talked about international finance in conspiratorial terms and then ran ads before the election that just had this litany of Jewish names. I mean, you don't know what else to say about it except that they were the... Classic tropes of of anti semitism, and not just of any anti semitism, of of Hitler's anti semitism.
3: It, it, it's when it come, in a way it comes back to your original question about comparison. I mean, when people point swastikas on walls, right? They're making a comparison, and and all the goodwill in the world by you know by, by thoughtful people like you and me can't make that comparison disappear, right? Like in some sense, it's being made for us. If people write, you know, make America white again and, you know, have swastikas or if, if, if people, you know, as, as they just did death after this rally in Washington, shout hail to victory, which of course is American English for Zig Heil. When people do that, the comparison is already being made. You know, and no amount of historical political correctness is going to make that comparison wash away. You know, the, the, you, we can't we can't stop it just by by, by, by pussyfooting around our, our, ourselves. Now, yeah, I, I mean, at the specific level, I agree. I mean, there there are quite there are quite specific tropes, National Socialist tropes, like the idea that. One's enemies are in league with the hidden hands of history, which are usually presented as Jewish. That that turns up the idea that Hillary Clinton, you know, makes history by, by meeting offshore with, you know, unnamed leaders of finance. That, for anyone who spends a lot of time working on national socialism or fascism, that sounds awfully familiar. And of course, you know, the the idea that politics is essentially about the protection of, of one people against international forces, and that there aren't really rules about this, that it's just a matter of, you know, it's just a matter of the righteousness of of of, of the homeland and its people. That's, that's also, that also has a very strong whiff of the 1930s. But I would say, you know, I'd make a point which is even stronger, maybe, even where, you know it's not exactly I mean, it's striking, as you say, that sometimes one is confronted with ideas that just are exactly like ideas of the 1930s. But even when they're not exactly like the 1930s, it's worth noting the general pattern. There's an there's a important break between people who think that politics is about rules and that there are rules here and there are rules abroad. And that one might improve them or reform them and so on. But there are basically rules and those rules will lead us along towards prosperity and freedom. And people who say, No, in fact, it's all a struggle. The rules are there to be broken. Life is constantly a state of exception. You know, I'm an exceptional person. I come from nowhere. I'm going to lead you to the truth. I'm I'm your voice. We're going to break the rules at home and abroad. That's going then that's gonna bring something better, right? There's a pretty fundamental break in the two styles of politics, and you know, we find ourselves sliding pretty, pretty quickly towards the second.
2: Yeah, I think you were fr- a minute ago, to this gathering that happened in Washington over the weekend of, of this alt-right gathering, I think the group is technically called the National Policy Institute. They have an innocuous name, but this guy—I mean, first of all, they were saying "Heil, Victory!" and giving the Nazi salute. And this is three blocks from the White House in, in a federal office building which they've rented. But uh, the, the part that made me think of you was that, that Richard Spencer, who's the leader of this organization, gave this an after-dinner speech. And he said, and this is according to the report in the New York Times, he's ranting about the mainstream media, and he said, perhaps we should refer to them in the original German. And the audience screamed back in, in unison, Lügenpresse. I don't know, is that how you pronounce it? Lying press.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot is going on sort of in and around journalism, which is symptomatic of, of, of the big problem we're facing. So let me, let me just take this a little bit more broadly. In, in fascism there isn 't really truth there isn 't really enlightenment there isn't there aren 't really facts and evidence in, in in fascism you know you start from will and emotion and fantasy and myth. you know your idea of greatness is primarily an aesthetic idea it 's not built up on structural foundations that you 've you know investigated and and, and, and verified it 's primarily a kind of vision of greatness which then you will try then you'll cast yourselves after it, you know, by way of armies or by way of rhetoric or, or something or other. So fascism, you know, the first time around was inherently hostile to, to the press, not just because the press represented different. I mean, what, the, what fascism said about the press was that it lied, you know, as in that, as in that cliche, or that the press was all owned by Jews, right? That's what, that's what they said, but there was something deeper going on, which is that fascism can't really tolerate a culture where people are trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> I mean fascism can't really handle individuals who are trying to figure things out for themselves on the basis of facts or with the help of other people who are who are trying to understand the world on on the basis of facts. And so what you have, you know, now which is which is distressing is this kind of encirclement of um, of journalism, on many sides, you know, not just on the extreme right, by people who refer to it as the mainstream media, therefore categorizing it as just sort of one more slice of truth, or one more slice of you know fiction, perhaps, among others. Right? And therefore there's and, and, and where this leads, you know, is, is is to this is this conclusion that there's not really any truth. And and of course, you know, one can one can talk until the cows come home about what truth is, but there's a fundamental difference between punting on truth completely, which is part of the fascist position, and thinking, you know, it's difficult to get absolute truth or perfect truth or uncontroversial truth or objective truth, but what we should be trying to do is figure things out. Those are two very different positions. So you know, when, when, when Nazis today or in 1933 called the press the Lügenpresse, these are the ultimate stakes. You know, is there truth or is there not truth? Because if there's not truth, you know, that opens the way towards the notion that everything is really a struggle. We can say what we want. Our words are just one more weapon, you know, in this struggle for victory. They don't, they don't attempt to describe the world. They're, just, they're only about changing the world so that the world becomes more like this racial struggle that we think it really ought to be.
4: Keep extensive. Trials and you watch them whenever they're airing I guess I should have known when you bought a new bone For your puppies named Gerbils and Gary. You showed up late to our very first date I said, how are you? You said, white power Call me paranoid, but I'm not overjoyed When you ask me if I want to shower I think you're a Nazi Don't be lying are you a Nazi? Are you anti-Zion? Maybe Your every dress is monogrammed, SS, You hold an Aryan picnic and bash And it makes me irate When you say I look great When I wear a little tiny mustache Your social politics say that races don't mix And you call it pure blood pollution And whenever I'm sad Say it's not so bad for every problem there's a final solution I think'
9: you're a Nazi. let's talk about the seeding ground for the rise of Nazism. See if there are any comparisons there. There was a key phrase in something I read that was the appeal of Hitler to Germans who were living drab lives. Germany and its people felt very oppressed and you know very much reduced in their circumstances after World War I, because the, the settlements from the war were were punitive and really did leave them stripped in a lot of ways, financially and otherwise. And I at least see the parallel between people who have, you know, their lives have been, their their economic lives have been decimated by, by a long-standing recession. They don't feel particularly empowered. And I want to know how far I can carry out that analogy before it falls apart. Do you see parallels, Edith, to where the, where the Germans were then and where classes of Americans are now?
6: I do see parallels, but I think not in the way you're suggesting. Okay. Um, I understand people commonly say that Hitler as well as Trump are speaking to the dispossessed, right? And we do have statistics that show that as unemployment rose in Germany over the 1920s, the popularity of the Nazis rose, and he absolutely was speaking to the dispossessed. But what I think is important to acknowledge about both the Trump phenomenon and the rise of Nazism is that these were big tent movements, that Trump is indeed Appealing to a wide variety of people, he really does I mean we talk about um, the unemployed and people without you know college or, or high school degrees. but he if you look at the exit polls, he really is crossing an entire swath of society as did Hitler. And one of the reasons Nazism prevailed is because it was able to cut across these cleavages, religious, gender, class, urban, rural, mm-hmm. and um, they were both big tent phenomena
9: that brings up something that, that's really stood out to me and that is Charles how easy it is to characterize too broadly the people who are in support of Trump and we've been hearing in polls lately that for people who who think that Trump may not get the nomination they'll scoot over and vote for Bernie Sanders that you know there's you don't expect to hear that and it's easy to say well you know they're stupid they're low information voters and we're finding out that's not true either yeah.
11: this is a very complex question I and mean, one thing to think about is is people say well we have declining living standards, the middle class is being squeezed, and this is what's giving rise to Trump. Um, I have a lot of trouble with that type of simplistic one-on-one, that's what's giving rise to Trump. Uh, we have in this country a long history of of racially charged and xenophobic politics. Uh, that's been going on for a long time, and it didn't start with Trump, but, uh, uh, and it's been it's been concentrated in the Republican Party over the last 20, 30 years as it's as increasingly uh, adapted to this type of racial resentment and xenophobia inside the Republican Party. What's, to me, I think the most important thing that's going on today is that the Republican Party has, is giving voice to this in ways that it's never done before. Mm-hmm. And more brutal forms than it's ever done before. I'm not sure that that shows much about what's going on in society. It's more shows what's going on in the Republican party. And I think that's important to think about. And I think that's one of the things the comparison with Hitler may be useful for. I mean, Hitler came to power in a time after the extraordinary shock of the first world war, which is a devastating war, which Germany lost uh, national humiliation in the wake of the war. Um, And then as Either points out by the end of the 1920s, there's this terrible depression in Germany, which throws uh, millions of people out of work. Hitler rose in that climate.
4: Mm-hmm.
11: Uh, I don't really see we have that climate today. We have, you know, what is it is at 72 months of steady job growth. We have, you know, yes, there's squeezing of it, incomes have been flat for a long time for many workers. That's not what's going on here. This is a tapping of racial and other resentments uh, and this is which is not new. What's new is the institutional frame in which the Republican Party is giving voice to this.
9: I'm going to push back a bit on what might seem like minutiae, but I know that there's a lot of dissent over what's happening with the job picture because job growth and unemployment figures don't reflect all the people who've fallen out of the system. People who've been looking for work for over five years, uh, people who are, yeah, they're employed, but they're working five jobs and they have no, no other coverage. I mean, so I, I just wonder about your point that it's not so much reflective of that.
11: Well, we've had hard economic times before. Mm-hmm. We've had high unemployment before. We've had flat wages before. We've never had a leader of one of the two main parties, or at least in the modern period, which expresses xenophobia and racism in such brutal forms. Uh, and I think that to say one is caused by the other is a little bit simplistic. Of course, we have discontented people. I'd also agree with Edith. This is a broad tent. This is a this includes very prosperous people mm-hmm. who are very excited about Trump's... Uh, big tax cuts for the wealthy population, which has nothing to do with uh, flat wages. And a lot of what he talks about has nothing to do with flat wages. So I would, I step back from that, it's, that it's, this is just an expression of hard times. I think it, uh, we have a lot of racial resentment in this country. We have a lot of xenophobia. It's not new. What's new is the political strength that it has within the Republican Party. And I think we have to look at the institutions of the Republican Party, how it's evolved over the last 30 plus years to understand why it has that strength.
3: When the Fuhrer says me is the master race, be high. Right in the pure space. Not to love the
2: Pure
7: is a great disgrace, so be hile hile right in the pure
4: space.
5: Her says
10: Richard Spencer came to town, the uh, neo-Nazi, uh, the Mister Sieg Heil. It's uh, it's gotten around the news quite a bit. He was here on Monday with his little white nationalist group, the Atlantic. Uh, it's the Atlantic, right, Daniel? Yeah. Yeah. Has the uh, has the article on the video uh, you can check out. And, uh, well, you know, here's just, you know, one of the clips, uh, you know, uh, you'll recall Heil Hitler literally meant hail Hitler and, um, you know, Sieg Heil, hail victory. Uh, So anyhow, here's here's uh, Richard Spencer with his little group of white nationalists actually at the Ronald Reagan building. Here he is.
8: Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory!
10: These guys are uh, uh, doing the warm salute here all around the room. They're holding up the, the Hitler salute. And, uh, you know, this, this uh, here's another this is clip number two. This is Richard Spencer uh, talking about, you know, the white race.
8: No one will honor us for losing gracefully. No one mourns the great crimes committed against us. For us, it is conquer or die.
10: Right. And here he is talking about what it is to be
8: white. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. We build, we produce, we go upward. And we recognize the central lie of American race relations. We don't exploit other groups. We, we don't gain anything from their presence. They need us and not the other way around.
10: And, and here he is finally saying America is a white nation.
8: America was, until this past generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our creation. It is our inheritance And it belongs to us.
10: More Hitler salutes uh, in the meantime. So one guy comes up to one of the Hitler saluting guys and goes, there's somebody behind you with a camera. (laughs) So I shouldn't laugh. Uh, the uh, Steven Rosenfeld over at alternate soon after Spencer started slamming the mainstream media, he jeered, perhaps we should refer to them in the original German and the crowd shouted back. Now, do you, you know, do you think the average person knows enough German to know the Nazi era word for lying press? Well, Richard Spencer said, you know, he, he talked about the, he said, perhaps we should refer to them in the original German. The crowd shouted back Lugin Presse! And, uh, you know, then he said, America was until this, as I just played, until this last generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our creation, our inheritance. It belongs to us. We have seen an explosion in hate crimes. In Germany in the 1930s, Stephen Rosenfeld writes uh, over at Alternet, in an article titled as as Trump builds his authoritarian presidency echoes of 1930s germany and 1950s mccarthyism abound in germany nazi supporting paramilitary groups created their own arrest detention and torture stations during the first year of hitler's rule the authorities didn't stop them and most of the american journalists stationed there at the time didn't want to include the paramilitary violence as part of a larger societal trend But those outside targeted circles in Germany didn't see at the time were the steps being taken to start transforming a democratic republic to authoritarian rule. During the first months of Hitler's rule, German authorities told foreign journalists and diplomats that attacks by fascist thugs were outliers and would soon end. There were even official denunciations by the government. But it didn't stop. Those who did see it for what it was were frequently dismissed as too political prejudiced and shrill. Finally, we have Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi, saying, or the white supremacist, whatever he calls himself, I do think we have a psychic connection, you can say a deeper connection with Donald Trump, in a way that we simply do not have with most Republicans. Yeah, I think so. So, the New York Times then asked the question, the country now finds itself at a particular dangerous moment, with advocates of discrimination and hate emboldened as they have not been For decades, given the danger of violence and bigotry these groups pose, why then would Mr. Trump, who is so offended by the Hamilton cast's plea for tolerance, remain silent? Mr. Trump can find more time to rebuke legitimate satire, but not the hateful speech being wielded. Well, let me share with you, I've shared this before, but it's worth revisiting, I wrote this back in uh, November of 2005. You can find it on our website at TomHartman.com. It's a book review of a book by Milton Mayer. Uh, It's titled They Thought They Were Free. Milton Mayer in uh, the early 1940s after World War II was a reporter in Chicago. He was Jewish, a very, very good reporter. And uh, he traveled to Germany after the war to figure out who were these Germans. Who allowed this to happen? Not not the not the the frenzied, you know, see Hilers. who were the average Germans. Who were the, you know, the and he ended up he talked to a baker, he talked to a construction worker, he talked to a college professor. None of these people had been active during the the Hitler time in supporting Hitler. They also had not been active in the opposition. They simply conducted their business throughout throughout all those years. And he was like, what the heck is going on? He wanted to know. So he opens the book by noting that he was prepared to hate the Nazis he was going to meet. But he wrote, they, he discovered that they were just as human as the rest of us. This is uh, Milton Mayer, what he said. He's passed away, by the way, now. He said, I liked them. I couldn't help it. Again and again, as I sat or walked with one or another of my 10 Nazi friends, I was overcome by the same sensation that I had gotten, that had got in the way of my newspaper reporting in Chicago in years before in the 1930s. I liked Al Capone. I liked the way he treated his mother. He treated her better than I treated mine. He writes about how, uh, Milton Mayer then, writes about how if he were to die tonight, at least he could look back on some good he had done his nazi friends would never be able to die in peace knowing the evil they had participated in if even by acts of omission that that evil could never be wiped clean and he dreaded that americans would ever feel the same for acts that we may one day commit as a nation he writes he writes and i quote now i see a little better how nazism overcame germany not by attack from without or by subversion from within but with a whoop and a holler it was what most germans wanted or under pressure of combined reality and illusion, came to want. They wanted it, they got it, and they liked it. I came home a little afraid for my country, afraid of what I might, uh, of what it might want, and get, and like, under combined pressure of reality and illusion. Pretty astonishing. We'll be back. So we're reading from Milton Mayer's book. They thought they were free. Once again, Milton Mayer, a. A uh, reporter from uh, Chicago, I think it was the Sun uh, or the Sun-Times, I, I, back in, in the 40s, it, it may have had a different name, and I, 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 don't, I don't have the book right in front of me right now, but he was a very, very, very well-respected reporter. And he went over to Germany and interviewed these, these average people. And this is from one of his interviews with um, a college professor, a German college professor, who throughout you know the Hitler years and the war and everything just kept teaching college. And he says, this separation of government from people, this widening of the gap took place so gradually and so sensibly, so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps even intentionally as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes and all the crises and reforms. And there were real reforms too so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me. Unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us ever had the occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, What all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must someday lead to? One no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in a field sees the corn growing. Until one day it is over his head. Pastor Niemöller, again this is his college professor, Nazi friend that he talked to in Germany. Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself and said that When the Nazis attacked the communists, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist, so he did nothing. And then they attacked the socialists, and he was a little uneasier, but still he wasn't a socialist, and he did nothing. And then the schools and the press and the Jews and so on, and he was always uneasier, but still he did nothing. And then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman, and he did something, but then it was too late. Yes, I said, writes Milton Mayer. You see, my colleague went on, one doesn't see exactly where or how to move. Believe me, this is true. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for the one great shocking occasion, thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join you in resisting somehow. You don't want to act or even to talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. Why not? Well, you're not in the habit of doing it. It's not just fear, fear of standing alone that restrains you. It is also genuine uncertainty. Uncertainty is a very great f- and important factor, and instead of decreasing as time goes on, it grows. Outside in the streets, in the general community, everyone seems happy. One hears little protests, certainly sees none. you know, in France or Italy, there are slogans against the government painted on the walls and fences. But in Germany, outside of the great cities, perhaps, there's not even this. In my university community, in my own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom certainly feel as you do, but what do they say? They say, it's not so bad. You're seeing things. You're an alarmist. And you are an alarmist. You are saying that this must lead to that. And you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes. But how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? And how do you know or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party intimidate you. On the other hand, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. But the one great shocking occasion... When tens or hundreds of thousands will join you in the streets, that one occasion never comes. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and smallest thousands, yes, millions would be sufficiently shocked if, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 43 had come immediately after the German firm sticker on the windows of non-Jewish shops in 33. But of course, this isn't the way it happens. In between come all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. Step C is not so much worse than step B, and if you didn't make a stand at step B, then why should you at step C? And so on for step D. And then one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy in some minor incident. In my case, it was my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew, swine. Suddenly it collapses all at once, and you see that everything, everything has changed, and changed completely under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched. All reassuring the houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, the spirit has changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility even to God. He wraps it up. He says, "Uh, I do do not see, even now, how we could have stopped it. Many, many times since it happened, I've pondered that pair of great maxims, Principus Obsta and Finem Rispus, resist the beginnings and consider the end. But one must foresee the end in order to resist or even see the beginnings. One must foresee the end clearly and certainly. And how is this to be done by ordinary men or even by extraordinary men?
1: We just heard clips today from NPR from way back in 2006 explaining Sandra Day O'Connor's take on avoiding dictatorships. The Trump cast spoke with Timothy Snyder in two parts about what we can learn from the rise of Hitler to see what lessons can be applied today in the face of similar tendencies. The Daily Show laid out the parallels between Trump and Third World strongman dictators. Angie Coiro on InDeep Radio hosted a conversation with historians during the primary campaign, parsing out some of the parallels between Trump and Hitler. And finally, we just heard Tom Hartman urge us not to wait for the end of fascism before we resist it. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
12: Hi, this is Barbara. I'm in San Jose, California, and I'm attempting your experiment. So one of the things that really resonated for me was when um, I think it was Glenn Greenwald was talking about, you know, people that, you know, the Democrats, you do this thing, I call it hippie punching, right, where they just, you know, punch down and they, they show the world, like, see, we're not... You know, we're not holding to our base. We don't have to do what they want, you know, because we're better than that. But what that means is that what we keep hearing over and over again is, guess what? What are you going to do? Vote for the other guy? Or are you going to vote? You're going to vote for us. And so the Democrats, it doesn't feel like they felt the need to do any work at all. Uh, for example, I live in California. I live in the Bay Area. It's obscenely expensive to live here. You know, I work for a telecommunication company, and our contract has been up, and it hasn't been renewed. Was Hillary Clinton or any of the other Democrats here talking about that? No, I voted for Hillary. Obviously, I'm still a Democrat, but I do feel like we get taken for granted. And I'm not surprised that the electorate said no. Anyway, thanks. I hope that was short enough. Bye.
3: Hey, Jay, it's Alan, a member from Connecticut calling in regarding your message to people regarding memberships and how they've been dropping off. I've just canceled mine and I've signed up again, uh, doubling my membership contribution amount. I think it's really important and I want to encourage the work you're doing. And I want to thank you because really what you've done is you've changed my life, certainly my outlook on things and and that's worth something to me. And so I want to make sure that I can support you in whatever ways you can. I'm in a position where I can do this right now and I will commit to doing that for the next year. So rest easy knowing at least that's there. And thanks again for all you do.
7: Hi, Jay. It's Dave from Wolfie, Washington. I'm calling uh, regarding your call to take something that's on the show, uh, reinterpret it, and kind of re-explain it in our own words. And I found the interview with Thomas Frank that you replayed from This Is Hell so insightful. It it opened my eyes to some things. I've not considered myself to be a Democrat for a long time or affiliated with the Democratic Party. And it's always been just a long series of things that that they've done that seemed utterly baffling. But it's like, I can't I can't be part of a party that's doing this stuff. I don't know what they're thinking. Welfare reform was maybe the first chink that I saw as, as a, you know, at that point, you know, young, twenty-year-old, very enthusiastic political person, and then under the Bush administration, bankruptcy "quote unquote" reform, which was just punitive and made it very, very hard to get out from under medical debt. And like, surely, you know, we control—I uh, think it was the time to have we, the Democrats, controlled the house. Surely, this is going to get stopped. This, this, this isn't going to go through. And it passed overwhelmingly. And I was just—I guess—I had no idea how this could have happened. The just blatant betrayals of environmental groups or, or, or racial minorities. That I was like, this, why, it made no sense bringing um, the, the conservative anti-gay hate monger in to give the opening prayer at Obama's inauguration. I was like, what, why, This? Wh- what is going on? This makes no sense. But the narrative that Frank described of just the, the class, the revised class politics of the Democrats of not being representative of the working class anymore being representative of the professional class kind of crystallized in narrative that explains all these weird things. And it explains the Trump election in a different way. I, I, I can see, and I see my parents, working class people, just to the core, caught in this same dilemma that the, you know, the Republicans despise them. The Democrats now pander or have a, 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 a pity, which is infuriating. You can't get behind. You don't want anybody to get pity. You see it in the language that Hillary used that, you know, and, and entitlements are a good thing. But the rhetoric was that it's not a hand out. It's a hand up, which sounds so good and noble if you're in that class giving the hand up. But to the people needing the help, both sound like. Disdain and pity, and you can't rally around that. You can't get excited about a party which is doing that. You don't want to hand up. You want help. You want somebody to understand you and pitch in and be alongside you and be, you know, understand and and work uh, to make life better, not to magnanimously extend the hand up. And this, I think, this extends across other kind of traditional democratic groups. In recent, uh, further back, but recent shows there's been discussions of the problems of allyship, that discriminated groups, blacks, gender minority, sexual uh, orientation minorities, what, all the, the the idea that, you know, the good ally is coming in and, and uh, here to save the day. And, you know, that they were tired of allies, they didn't need more allies. I said, that doesn't, you know, I am I, going to be quiet. on the motion but that doesn't necessarily, why don't you want people to ally with you? But I, I think that this explains part of it. They, know what they want they want people to be an alliance. They just don't want people to be in judgment and self-important. You know, holier than thou. Oh, we're here to we're here to help. Nobody wants that. Yeah, totally. Nobody wants that. I get that. Um, so yeah, Thomas Frank and his book that he mentioned in the interview. Listen, liberal. I got to get a hold of that. I got to read that. I think that. I think that there's got to be further insights in there. So there's my contribution to your ongoing project, Jay, uh, to what it's worth. I hope it helps. As always, stay awesome, man.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just to wrap things up one more time, I, I want to make as clear as I possibly can my stance on the Uh, On the idea of comparing our current situation to fascist regimes of any kind, you know, third world dictators or Hitler in particular, my my idea is what Sandra Day O'Connor said. I don't think we are not in a dictatorship right now, but as there was 10 years ago, there is reason to be concerned that we may be on that path. And I think we're a little bit closer <laughs> uh, to that end result. Uh, we are further along that path now than we were 10 years ago. But I don't think I'm being unnecessarily alarmist. I think uh, I, I'm simply stating facts and trying to make, you know, reasonable and nuanced comparisons that help guide us in our current situation. However, I think there is sometimes A reason to panic. Uh, I am reminded of a conversation I had at Netroots Nation, you know, the big like media liberal nerds conference having this summer, you know, happens every year. So this summer I was in a conversation with two other guys and we were talking about Trump and his possibility of winning. And one of the guys said, we need to be in absolute panic mode. We cannot let this guy win. We should all be panicking. And I more or less agreed with that stance. Then the third guy in the group said, no, I'm I, I'm not buying it. He can't possibly win. I'm not going to waste my energy panicking. I, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm not a panicker. I just don't panic. I think everything's going to be fine. I don't think there's any chance he can win. There's nothing to worry about. And so I'm just going to sleep easy for the next several months and the election will come and go and Hillary Clinton will be the new president and you know so the, the this other guy and i were saying look worst case scenario if you panic and hillary clinton wins the worst thing is that you look kind of silly and you're proven wrong and oh well the worst case scenario in the other direction is you did nothing and then terrible terrible things happen Trump is elected and at the at the very least institutes a bunch of really damaging conservative policies. But at worst, he really follows through on his sort of autocratic dictatorial tendencies and he turns America into something we don't recognize. So do you want to risk that or do you want to risk like looking a little silly because you panicked too soon? I was in the camp of, you know, let's go ahead and panic. And if it turns out we're wrong, then OK, we were wrong and we can just all be relieved uh, when we are proven wrong. So in a way, you know, not in those words, of course, but I think that's more or less what Sandra Day O'Connor was saying. And you know, she's very just conservative, serious, you know, pretty moderate person, not not one for panicking, uh, but, you know, very serious, given a serious speech on a serious topic. And she's like, hey. Let's not even go in that direction. Let's not take the first steps in that direction because we know where that di- direction leads. We do not want to go there. So right now I'm in panic mode, but I-, I would be I would be happy to be proven wrong. I would love it if uh, Trump gets into office and he's just the most normal, vanilla conservative president and puts a bunch of conservative policies in place. Not even a whiff of uh, you know autocracy or dictatorship. Uh, by any stretch. And then we all just wipe our brows and say, okay, I guess we were panicking over nothing. Isn't that great? Yeah, that would be great. But in the meantime, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid us taking as many steps down that path as I can. So that's my take on where we are right now. Uh, Secondly, today, This is your homework. As I've been talking about a few times since the election, I really want us to keep pushing on the national popular vote. So your homework for today is to go to nationalpopularvote.com. Click on your state. Uh, There's just a pull-down menu. It's like progress in the states. So find your state and just see what the progress is. Maybe it's already been passed, you know, this interstate compact legislation. Maybe it's already been, been passed in your state, In which case, excellent, you're off the hook. Otherwise, see where things are. See if it's maybe been voted on but not quite passed yet, which means it could be pushed. Just just give it another little tip, and it can be pushed over the edge. You could be part of that tipping to get it across the finish line. But whatever the case, your homework is to find out status. Many people listening will find that it's already been passed in their states, but for many, it will not have been. So it is up to you to find out for yourself, see what the progress is, and then see what you can do about it. These state legislators do not be intimidated by these people. They're like owners of car dealerships. These are not people to be feared Or intimidated by, it is completely reasonable for you to just call up these people's offices, make an appointment, go chat with them at their office, and lend your support to the national popular vote legislation. It's also certainly possible you can get in touch with the legislators in the states who are already in favor of it. Go talk with them and say, hey, what can I do to help? uh is this, is this blocked up on a committee somewhere like who who's who's the guy who's blocking this? Uh, I'll get you know dozen of his constituents and blockade his office. uh you know, we'll get his attention. sometimes that's how politics gets done and it is easier than you think at the state level. So that is your homework for today. Go check out your state. See where things stand. And finally, uh, I've been mentioned like since before the holiday little break there, uh, I was, I'm doing a little experiment. I, I wanted people to call in and explain something that they had heard on the show, but explained it in a different way, give it a different spin, coming up from a different angle. And so now if you've been listening, you've heard a few of those. There was a couple before the holiday. You've heard a few more today. And now my question for you is, How did those voicemails come across to you? Were they helpful? Did, you know, was something clarified for you? Did something crystallize? Did, you know, did just click into place in a way that it hadn't before? If that happened to you, I would love to hear from you. This is all part of the experiment. I'm curious to see if any of these just normal average people calling in, you know, after listening to the show, just like you calling in, explaining something had an impact on someone and helped clarify something for them that the show didn't do a good enough job of explaining or clarifying. So if you had any kind of experience like that, give me a call or or just email, however you feel comfortable, and let us know. The number again, 202-999-3991. I promise I will explain soon uh, the purpose of this whole experiment. We're just not to the end of it yet, so keep those comments coming in. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode... All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. <laughs>